welcome to iloveedmontonrealestate.com. I'm your host, Jason Scott, and with me today is Sean Cunningham from Remax Real Estate. Welcome to the show, Sean. Hello. So what got you into real estate? I initially, I was in the auto industry for 12 years and just transitioned from cars to houses, and it was an easy transition. So, Are there some cross techniques or talents or skills that transfer from selling cars to selling homes? Absolutely. The process is a little bit different, but it's at the end of the day, the goal is to help your client uh, achieve their goal. So whether it's buying a car or buying a house or selling a house, the end goal is to help them get it done. Right. Okay. Is there an area of the city or the surrounding area of Edmonton that you focus on? Generally, I mean, from my experience with most realtors is you generally kind of focus in on the area where you live. So for me, that's in the Northeast Edmonton. So North Edmonton, East Edmonton, Sherwood Park, Fort Saskatchewan, Morinville, St. Albert. But of course we can go anywhere, right? So Mm -hmm. I do do business on the South side and Leduc and Beaumont and all the, and Devon and even did a deal this week in Kelmar. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> What's happening in Kelmar these days? Not a whole lot. No? Right. <laughs> one, There's one. a whole three listings out there to choose from. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, but that might be indicative of what's going on in the broader market. So yeah. I've heard that there's not a whole lot of listings right now. And it's, what is it? It's February of 2022. So Yeah, and it's. I think what's happening is we're having a perfect storm of record low inventory because... A lot of sellers, of course, don't want to list their home in December and January because nobody wants to move or sell when it's 30 below outside or, or and even clients this week or have a possession and they can't get any of their yard ornaments out because they're all frozen to the ground. Right? Ah. So, Oh, and your, your clients are the sellers? Yeah. So they, <laughs> you know, they have to come back in March and April and hope that the seller or that the new buyers will let them come get their <laughs> frozen yard ornaments. So that's funny. But, and then I think what happened with the interest rates going up in November is a lot of people who were pre-approved prior to that are mm-hmm. kind of running out of time to find and buy something. Yeah. So there's a lot of buyers out right now, and there's not a lot of sellers that are willing to sell in January. So we have a really low inventory and ending up in multiple offers in January, which is, of course, not really heard of yeah. in the past. Right? Well, so, that's a trend that seems to have been going on since last summer with multiple offers. Yeah. But to have it in yeah November, December, January is really unusual in the 14 years I've been a mortgage broker. So yeah. presumably we'll see listings come on here in the next couple of months and do you think we're going to get back to a balanced market or will it still be sort of the seller's market right now? I think it's going to stay a seller's market for the next probably three to four months depending on of course what happens with the Bank of Canada and the interest rates because as interest rates go up the affordability people can afford goes down so we'll have to either do a price adjustment to factor that in or see what happens. But if the interest rates don't go up or change, then there's still going to be a lot of buyers. So we'll really depend on how many sellers come out in March and April. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So this will be our third pandemic spring market. I yes. Guess. <laughs> <laughs> how do you think this one will be different from a pandemic point of view? You know what? I think it's really going to depend on how many people end up going back to offices and work. Right. I've had a lot of buyers over the last two years that have been told they'll be permanently working from home. So now they're instead of uh, cookie cutters house in the suburbs, they're finding acreages to live on because they if they're going to be working from home, living from home, they want more space, more flexibility to do things in their own yard, right? And yeah. if they don't have to commute back and forth into the city, it changes what they can 
do, right? Yeah, so, for sure. So you think acreages will continue to be popular? I believe so, yeah. yeah. Even even if the when the pandemic ends, I think just a lot of people realized being at home so much that you really want to have a comfortable home. Right. Right. So acreages are kind of unique in the sense that there's often a disconnect in pricing for acreages versus your typical suburban house, right? Yeah. It really, there's so many variables, more variables that go into acreages, your septic and, and sewage systems, your water systems, you know, all those things that are different, whether it's on municipal water or you have to haul a truck in every two months to fill it up, it plays into the decision, right? So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What else are you seeing in the market in terms of what properties in demand or price points that are being focused in on? I'd say 2021, I would say the hot point was between 300 and 400,000. Mm-hmm. There was a, a lot of demand for buyers in that price point. It's still a very hot price point, but now I think we've increased it to four to 500,000 because the inventory is so low. I did a search last week and in Edmonton, under 500,000 for detached homes, there was 867 listings. And what do you think that would normally be in January? In January? Or February or whatever. January, February would normally be probably closer to 2,000. Oh, seriously? Yeah. So we're at less than 50%? Less than 50% of where we should be. So that's amazing. Yeah. That speaks to upward pressure on pricing then, yeah. for sure. Yeah. One of the things that I've noticed is people wanting to move to Edmonton from out of province. So the big ones being BC and Ontario. My perception is because yeah. its houses are so much more affordable here than in Toronto and surrounding area. Are you seeing any of that? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, even my investors for the last four or five years have all been selling because they just were thought Alberta was done and the economy and, and the oil and everything else. So they started selling about four or five years ago. And in the last three or four months, I've had quite a few investor calls looking for properties. I even did a deal in December with an investor who bought a $350,000 in-law suited bungalow. We won't okay. say a legal suite because yeah. it wasn't legal, but he paid 350000 for it. And his comment to me was he couldn't even get a one-bedroom condo in Toronto for that. So, yeah, yeah. so for him, it was pretty easy to make the decision to invest in, in Alberta because he now has a rental property with two potential rental incomes. So. Yeah, yeah. Have you been keeping track on what's happening with rents? Unfortunately, with myself, I'm not a property manager, but I do have quite a few investors. So I do keep in track a little bit just online, but I don't have access to the portal that the property managers have. So. Right. I was just curious as to whether there's upward pressure on rents yet. Yeah, there's definitely rents are going up. So, yeah. So what was it that prompted you to move from car sales to real estate? For me in the auto industry, I had plateaued. A little bit uh, as far as where I could, wanted to go and what I could do. And the idea of helping somebody buy or sell their real estate and help them accomplish, it's just that next step into another higher level of helping, right? Mm-hmm. And for me, there's no better feeling than when I give somebody the keys to the brand new house. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it was the same thing in the car industry. It was the best feeling is giving them the keys to their brand new car. Mm-hmm. And that just transitioned into an even better feeling when I give them the keys to their house. Mm-hmm. Right? Was there ever a specific situation in real estate where you went, you know what, this is it. I absolutely have arrived where I wanted to be. Yeah, actually, it just goes back to the first time I handed the keys to my first buyer. Okay. It just literally, I knew right there, this is it. This is what I want to do. So, And helping them and see the smile on their face and 
after everything they've gone through to get to that point. Because mm-hmm. it's a lot of work, a lot of stuff they have to go through, a lot of stress. Mm-hmm. And I always tell everybody that I, I always try to help you reduce the stress. I'm never going to eliminate it for you because it's just impossible, right? There's mm-hmm. always going to be a stress when buying and or selling homes. So. What are the major stress points that you see that you try to minimize as much as possible? There, there must be common themes. Yeah, a big part of it is taking them through the process, right? And, and having the right people to help them with those processes, right? I'm not a mortgage person, so I have a list of contacts with really great mortgage people on it. The next step after the offer gets accepted is a home inspection. So I have a list, on that list is three or four really good home inspectors, right? Very important because home inspectors are the ones that are looking after making sure the house is good for you to move into and that there isn't going to be any major problem. On that list is also the lawyers, Right, because mm-hmm. every industry has great, good, bad, and ugly <laughs> yeah. people in them, right? So yeah. you try to work with ones that are in that great to good yeah. category, and, right? And well, and obviously you build your roster over the course of your career, right? Absolutely, yeah. And have there been times where I've taken some people off my list? Absolutely, because I usually give everybody kind of a three strike rule, right? Mm-hmm. If Everybody can have a bad experience once, but once you have three bad experiences, then it's time to find somebody else to recommend. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What's the most frustrating day you ever had in real estate? (laughs) Unfortunately, this, I learned from it, but it was a possession with my clients and it was a divorce sale. Okay, so your clients were selling or buying? Buying. Okay. So days of possession, of course, can always be tricky because the contract says that you're supposed to have the keys by noon. Yeah. But unfortunately, there's too many hands in the day of process (laughs) to guarantee that it happens by noon. So I always recommend for people, don't take a vacation day from work on possession day because... It can happen anytime between 10 a.m. and 5 p.m. Yeah, I can see where the story is going. Yeah. So what happened? So I told them to let's meet at 5.30 because they both worked till 5. Okay. And they both agreed to that because they were going to plan on moving in on the weekend anyways. So we pulled up at 5.30 and literally every square inch of the driveway was full of garbage. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I had nothing. I had no words. I had no, I didn't know what to do. Fortunately, the listing agent was also very good. And when I called him the next morning, we were able to get 310 junk out and we we got rid of it all for them. But it just took away the entire experience for my clients, right? Of pulling up to their new home that they just purchased and now they have to deal with all this garbage on the drive. So it was literally bags of garbage? Bags of garbage and basically anything that they... Because it was a divorce, whatever they didn't want, they just left in the house and they like are in the driveway. Like they cleaned everything out of the house. The right. entire house was empty, but they literally left it all in the driveway. So, wow. but from that experience, I now with all my buyers, I put in a 24 hour walkthrough prior to possession. And yeah. ever since I've done that, it's actually night and day difference between uh, possession day. So, yeah. So who picked up the bill for 310 junk? Me and the listing realtor. Oh, really? Yeah. So, so the, the sellers got away with it. Yeah, unfortunately, that was the problem with picking it or going at 530, right? Just yeah. by the time you call the lawyer the next morning, yeah. the funds are already long gone, yeah, right? Yeah. So there's no more. The sellers had already picked up the check that afternoon and it was... They hit the road. They hit the road. So, <laughs> But like everything, right, as long as you learn from it, it's in all in how you handle the situation. If I had just left it and left it for the buyers to deal with them the next day, yeah. that wouldn't have been a good experience for them. Yeah, and, yeah. 
they really appreciated everything we did and how quickly we handled it and how quickly we got the people out the next morning to get it all gone. So. Yeah, well, and it's not like it was your fault, right? Or well, even the listing agents. No, fault. but unfortunately, this industry is all about perception, right? So yeah. it's it's how it's perceived and, and how it gets handled, right? So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's always going to be problems if you can yeah. <laughs> try to get ahead of the curve as much as possible. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I guess the other lesson from that is, <laughs> unfortunately, it wasn't the case for your people necessarily, but never plan on moving on possession day. No. Right? There's always going to be some sort of hiccup yeah. or delay yeah. with, with money moving around, right? Which is generally also why I always try to do possessions on Wednesday or Thursday and then kind of recommend people plan your move for the weekend, right? Yeah. If you can. It's not always possible with some people because some people literally, they sell their house and they didn't set up bridge financing, so possession of the sales the same day as the one that they're buying, which is also an extremely stressful situation for them, and I don't <laughs> recommend anybody doing it. For sure. But not everybody listens, so it's it's always a fun day when they're doing both on the same day, yeah. right? So, yeah. uh, how, how to get some gray hairs fast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's the best real estate advice you've ever received? I think just always look after the clients and everything else will look after itself, right? I mean, obviously, it's a stressful industry, but when you focus on the wrong things, and not that money and commission is the wrong thing, but if you focus on the commission and not on the clients, it generally leads to bad experiences, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you focus on the clients, the money will come. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So, how long have you been a realtor for? Just over 11 years, actually. Okay. Yeah, January of 2021. Or, sorry, 2011. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, you've seen a lot of up and down markets during that time. We had the run-up to 2014 was crazy busy. Yeah. And then we had a few years of plateau to little, little bit of a activity. down decline, yeah. <laughs> and then now... I mean, prior to 2020 or, yeah, prior to the pandemic, if somebody would have said that a world pandemic would have helped increase the real estate industry, I probably would have put money on that it wouldn't. Yeah, I thought for sure I'd be eating, like, no <laughs> noodles, right? But <laughs> yeah. I'm glad I was wrong. But, yeah, I don't think anyone anywhere would have thought real estate would have taken off the way it did over the last couple of years. No, and we did have the first three months from March till May. End of May was yeah, pretty. Yeah, it was a little quiet. It was pretty quiet. Yeah. So, but then end of May and June, it just took off. And yeah, I don't think I've stopped. Since no, then, it to hasn't be honest, slowed so. at all since then. Yeah, and now with oil prices being strong, and you know, I've talked to people all the time who are working in the oil industry. Uh, they're busy, so yeah. you know that should mean good things for Alberta and Edmonton specifically moving forward. Yeah, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about. I mean, obviously, you work with buyers, which is the last couple of stories we've talked about. But what about sellers? What sort of things do sellers have to be aware of when they're listing their house? Yeah, so with both my buyers and sellers, I go over these following things, but they're more to do with the seller's responsibilities. One of them, of course, is the real property reports, making sure that you get those done in a timely manner because it can delay closing, mm -hmm. not having it done. And then, of course, dealing with the city is not always fun getting compliance because they're very, as they should be, very stickler on all the rules and policies and making sure that everything is done properly. Uh, another big thing that came out in 
I believe it was 2016, is the way properties are measured. So I go over residential measurement standards with them and kind of explain. Because at the end of the day, ultimately, the seller is the one who's responsible, even though the realtors are the ones who are listing it and posting the measurements. But you mm-hmm. want to make sure that your house is properly measured. Mm-hmm. And then the final thing is material latent defects. So okay. And what are those? Material latent defects are defects that can't be seen by a reasonable inspection. Most common ones, of course, are sewer backups, foundation leaks that are hidden behind walls, those types of things. You legally and lawfully have to disclose if you've had any of those. So, Now, over how long back, right? Like, let's say you've owned the house for 20 years, and in the very first year of ownership, you had a leak and you remediated it, right? Do you say, hey, 20 years ago, I had a problem, but I fixed it? I think there's a reasonable amount of time probably within the last five years is probably sufficient if you haven't had any more issues with it, mainly because the home inspector is going to do, if they're aware of it, they'll do a full moisture test and thermal reading to make sure that there is no further moisture coming in in that area, right? Mm -hmm. But it also doesn't hurt. I mean, does it hurt having that information? Hey, I had a leak 20 years ago. It was, here's where it was. Here's what we did to fix it. We haven't had any leaks since. It's not really going to affect anything, right? Or at least it shouldn't, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. If a buyer's looking at that property and and that was disclosed to them, I don't foresee them not looking at taking the next step and purchasing that property from something that happened 20 years ago. Yeah. Right? Okay. And what happens if someone doesn't disclose something that they should have known or you strongly suspect they knew about? Legal action and can be sued for not only the cost, but the uh, time and undue stress. Mm-hmm. So, Have it, you ever seen that happen? Uh, fortunately for me, in 11 years, I haven't. But one of the lawyers that I do recommend, he has told me about a couple of experiences with his clients that where it has happened. And it, unfortunately, is not a good experience for anybody, mm-hmm. right? For both the previous sellers, the current buyers or current owners, yeah, right? And at the end of the day, nobody ever wants to go to court. Right? Yeah. it's You want to try to do everything you can to avoid that, right? So Because yeah. it's very costly. I had one set of clients relatively recently where they bought a home and if I recall correctly that there were issues with the basement and whether or not proper permits had been pulled and I forget the details, but it it did for sure cause them a lot of stress and and anxiety to get it resolved. Yeah, and even my own home when I went to sell it in 2019... I believe it was. Literally the day after we listed it, we had the sewer back up. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so, and we'd also received an offer that day, but we disclosed everything, right? And basically we ended up finding out that the roots were on the Epcor side of the line and that Epcor would only be willing to do a tree root maintenance program every two years and come and clean the lines and remove the roots. So unfortunately that's Epcor, and that's the way that they do it. The companies that we had out all recommended putting in a new sewer line, but of course, Epcor is the one paying the bill, so they decided not to do that. Mm-hmm. But we disclosed everything to the buyer, right, and told him what was going on and to keep an eye out for it. And yeah, he still continued with the purchase because, again, communication of it and how you handle it is really important. Sewer lines are actually a big deal. I mean, it's the most unsexy part of real estate. (laughs) (laughs) But if you buy a problem, that's an expensive, expensive problem to rectify. 100% it can be, yeah, for sure. It can be anywhere from $3,000 all the way up to $20,000. So, like, if you have buyers, do you have them do the camera scopes on lines? I recommend it, and all the inspectors that I use also recommend doing it, but... 
It also depends on the property, right? Properties built in the 60s, 70s, 80s that have big trees in the front yard, definitely want to get those done, right? But something built in 2018 with no trees in the front yard or nothing really around, I still recommend that you get it done because it's better to know, but it does cost an extra $150 to $250 on top of your inspection, right? Right. So it depends on the buyers, right? But I always give everybody the options and the information, and then it's up to them to make the decisions. Yeah, but probably well worth the money. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yeah, I've heard a few horror stories about sewer lines over the years, too, of course. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. So since we've had a run of multiple offer situations, I mean, how do you manage your buyer's expectations when they're, they want to write an offer on a place and suddenly you hear there may be another one or two or three offers coming down the pipe? Yeah. How do you manage that? It's basically, at the end of the day, I, again, give them all the information, let them know where you could end up having to be, and they decide on what they want to offer. Right? Mm-hmm. I give them all the information. It really comes down to, at the end of the day, if there's two offers competing or if there's 12, Mm. right? Because, of course, the more offers that come in, generally the higher the price go and then less the conditions, right? Mm -hmm. So, Because sometimes it's not always about the price in multiple offers. There could be other things that factor into the sellers deciding, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Somebody with a high price, highest price, but they have a sale of home condition on it isn't going to be as favorable as somebody with a little bit of a lower price with just financing or just an inspection Mm -hmm. or no conditions even. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the federal government, I think it was, floated the idea of eliminating blind bids? In other words, if it was a multiple offer situation, everyone would know what the other guy was offering. What are your thoughts on that? Not sure, actually. I think it would be interesting to see because there is... Of course, when things are unknown, there's always doubts and plants of seeds of doubt of what actually is going on or what what is actually happening. Mm-hmm. And just for perspective here, the reason the governments mention that is because in Toronto and Vancouver, you get these crazy bidding wars mm-hmm. where people will offer a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars more than the asking price. Yeah, and I can see that. I think maybe another option would be to have the broker involved. Maybe have the broker present all the offers and verify that all these things, because the more people that are involved, the less likely that there's any doubt, right? Mm -hmm. If there's other people involved, could be an option. I know myself over Christmas, we went into a multiple offer on a property and there was 12 offers over Christmas. So, and then the property ended up going for $65,000 over asking. Wow. So in little old Edmonton, little old Edmonton in in Chappelle. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So, and it was unconditional. So it sold, right? So what was it about that house or that situation that caused that? I think just the timing of the really low inventory and and the house, they did initially price it. I want to say probably 50 to $20,000 lower than what it probably should have been listed at, but they Mm -hmm. wanted sold quickly. And it was part of their plan was to entice a lot of offers. And in this situation, it worked out, right? It's always a gamble or a risk when you list your house for lower than market value, because if you only get one offer in, <laughs> where do you go where from do there? You go from there, right? <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, you can still say no, but it's going to be hard to justify why you're increasing your price for $20,000 <laughs> two weeks after you listed it, yeah, right? So, yeah. But generally, yeah, right now with the inventory being so low, it 
It was a nice house, had a big double car garage, fully finished basement with four bedrooms and three bathrooms and in a good area, right? So, And was it your clients who won or someone else? Uh, no, my clients, I didn't go that high over, mm. but it was somebody else's. So. And my clients also had a financing. We, we waived the property inspection condition because the house was built in 2018. Right. So it was fairly new. So. Right. And the basement was permitted and done by the builder. So there wasn't really a lot of concerns for them for the inspection. So in that situation, because initially when we put in the offer, we had an inspection condition on it. But because I think around the seventh or eighth offer, when we were notified that there was now eight offers, I talked to them and they said, okay, let's take off the inspection. They weren't willing to waive the financing just because it's too risky if something. Yeah, Yeah, unless you have three or $400,000 in your bank account, you should always have subject to inspection. Yeah. Or sorry, subject to financing, I should say. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Because it's not just the clients who get approved. It's also the property, right? Yeah. So what do you say when clients want to get aggressive and, and drop conditions like and that we may be in that situation where yeah. you know you almost have to protect people from themselves. You do. And again, what I do is I give them all the information, right? And I have a, an inspection form that I send them and say, like, if you don't do the inspection, all these things could possibly happen and let them make the decision. I never recommend, I think in 11 years, I've only done three or four deals where there was no home inspection. Mm-hmm. It's not something I usually recommend for people to do because you just never know, which is the whole point of doing the home inspection, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What other trends have you been seeing lately? So what I mean by that is like in the past few years, condos, especially apartment condos, have sort of been out of favor. There's been downward pressure on prices. Yeah. Do you think we're going to see any sort of turnaround on that front? I'm hopeful. I think we keep saying we can't go much lower on condos and then the next year happens and here we are, we're, we're lower than we were last year. Yeah. Right. So I think the biggest thing with condos is we just have to get buyer confidence instilled in buying them again, because there's been so many things that have happened with condos over the last 20 years that have made them become a lot harder to sell and for the buyers to be feel confident in buying. them. Mm-hmm. So Biggest thing, of course, that everyone is concerned with is special assessments. Yep. And the government did step in and did do, you know, made reserve fund studies and reserve fund plans uh, mandatory now, which has helped uh, substantially in the last five years. Unfortunately, with everything, it takes time, right? So they started initiating it in 2002 or 2004. And then every five years, they're supposed to do a new one, right? Mm-hmm. So, of course, now we're getting to that point. And I think a lot of from 2010 to 2014, there was a lot of special assessments because of the, partially because of the reserve fund studies being done, because now they knew about all these things, but now they're able to play a little bit of catch up. And I think a lot of the condos, if they're properly managed, are getting to the point where special assessments should be a thing of the past. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's always, I happen to be a treasurer on a condo board and there's always this tug of war between where should condo fees be, right? Yeah. If you have them too high, then you're hurting your owners if they want to sell. If they're too low, you're hurting your owners because it's you're just deferring things and setting up the odds of a special assessment. assessment yeah. Right? So it really is a balancing act. Yeah. So. And that's another thing on my list of contacts is I have condo review companies that will fully review all the documents and make sure that everything is looking good. And for the most part, most of them are looking better. There are still a few 
that are out there that are not doing the things that they should be doing. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, from my experience, I would say 90% of condo owners are two types of owners. And one of them is a first-time home buyer who just literally put all their money into the down payment and closing costs and everything. And they don't have three to $5,000 to fork out. So they always say no to any repairs major repairs because they don't want to incur this big expense. And then, of course, the other type is uh, investors who, of course, any expenses affect their return. So they also don't want to do any of the work because they don't <laughs> want to spend the money, right? Yeah, yeah. So it became a tug of war, like you said, between the condo boards and the management companies and trying to get all this stuff done. But I think as people are learning, if you don't do the stuff, the maintenance and the repairs it can get a lot more costly yep. in it the catches future. Up, it it catches up eventually, right? Yeah. So pay me now or pay me more <laughs> later. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, if you looked at, say, your last 10 closings, what other trends have you seen? I mean, we talked about multiple offers. What else is going on out there right now? Yeah, just a lot of buyer activity. In my last 10, eight of them have been buyers. I've only okay. done two, two sales out of the last 10. But I would say even generally, for the most part, I work, probably 60% with buyers and 40% are sellers. So. Okay. So let's say you had a family member who obviously you'd want to help them, but let's say they're buying out of province, right? Mm -hmm. What advice would you give them in terms of how to choose a realtor to help them out? Yeah, great question. And I, I definitely would recommend, obviously, you want to do a little bit of, of research on the realtor and check their, find out what their experience level is both in real estate, but also in life, right? For me, I had 13 years of restaurant experience, 12 years in the auto industry, and now 11 years in real estate. So they're all very customer and client focused industries. If you have somebody who's been doing real estate for six months and they come from a past where they're not dealing with the public or customer service, there's a lot of hesitation or could be there, right? Because they're not really familiar on how things really work, right? The other thing would be accreditations, if they have any extra education in, regarding real estate. For myself, I have three accreditations. Uh, one is the ABR, which is Accredited Buyer's Representation Program, the SRS, which is the Seller's Representation Program, and then the it's called RENE. It's the Real Estate Negotiating Expert designation. So all of those designations came with anywhere from two to seven days of classroom education and very beneficial in the real estate industry, right? Mm -hmm. Versus somebody who doesn't have those, mm -hmm. right? So, and then communication is probably the last thing, right? We're kind of in a society now where everybody wants everything right now, but in all reality, it's not always possible with a realtor because we are busy and we have multiple clients that we're working with. But generally, if they, you know, you send them a text or phone them, if they don't call you back within probably four to six hours would probably be a, a fair timeline. Could be a, a little bit of an indicator. Emails, generally, I always try to get back to emails on the same day that they're sent. But yeah, if they're not getting back to you for two or three days, could be an indicator that maybe they're too busy for you. Right. So. Right. Okay. Sean, do you have any other last thoughts or comments? No, just if you're looking to buy or sell real estate in the Edmonton area, send me a message or give me a call and let's get it done. Okay. It's, Thank you very much. All right. Thanks. Okay. And may you win all your multiple offers this year. <laughs> <laughs> and may there not be that many because it's a stressful situation. It is. Yeah. So, all right. Thanks a lot, Sean. Thank you. Thanks.